So, uh, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Dan Nellis. Uh, I'm on the teaching team here at Life Community, and uh, I'm excited to be here and uh, share the word with you guys this morning. I'm going to give you, um, and I did ask for permission to do this, so I'm going to give you a little, just a little insight into um, my home life. Um, we have a standing rule in our house, and many of you might have this, but it's a rule that we pretty strictly enforce, is that in the television is not allowed to be on um, during mealtime. It's just, we don't, it, it's not on. Um, and, uh, and especially dinner time, because that's family time, right? It's when we can at least get everybody together. And for those of you that know me well, you know that this is probably a, is a struggle, more a struggle for me than maybe for um, other members of, of my family. Um, but, you know, being married for almost 21 years now, um, I've been able to weas- weasel, negotiate um, a system of waivers um, so that, you know, during special significant events, um, I'm able to, like, have the TV on during dinner. So, like, the Super Bowl, obviously, um, the World Series, of course, um, those were the big two. But then over time, I've been able to expand um, the list to include, you know, the NCAA tournament, uh, college football playoffs, um, NHL playoffs, um, and, and golf, the, the four majors, obviously. But then there's obviously there's the, the fifth major, which is the PGA Championship, um, also, um, the memorial because it's local. Um, the waste management Phoenix Open because of nostalgia. Um, so you know, it's just after time, Kristen's kind of realized that hey, wait a second, like how did this happen? Um, so you know, this weekend is actually it's Father's Day, um, and it usually times up with the U.S. Open, which is one of the four majors. Um, it's being played in Pebble Beach, California, which means that golf has been going at our house from like noon until 10 p.m. every day. Um, so that being said, I'll try to get done as quickly as possible so we can all, I can get ready for lunch, second lunch, pre-dinner, dinner, second dinner, and a late evening snack while I watch a bit of golf. I, I love golf. I know we've got like a golf theme going on out there um, this morning. I, I, I enjoy playing golf. It's a, it's a, a game where it's, it's like true skill. Um, you know, it's just you and some clubs and a little white ball. Um, and your concentration, and you're just you're you're out in the middle of God's country, um, peppered with little holes that you're trying to get that ball into, and as few of swings as possible. Um, I love trying to get better at the game, which I'm not very good at it. Um, I love walking the course with my friends. I love talking about life and that last shot with them, um, and I love it when a great shot happens. Um, but it doesn't happen that often for me. Um, I really love the fact that golf forces me to make a choice. Every, every time I um, lace up my shoes and kind of sling my bag over my shoulders, it, it forces me to make a choice about what kind of person I want to be, too. Um, and more often than not, I fail, but I keep going back because um, it's a frustrating, maddening, wonderful game. Um, I think a lot about the quote. There's this movie. It's, a, it's a, not a good movie, but it's a, there's a lot of great golf movies out there. This is not one of them, but it's The Legend of Bagger Vance. And um, there's this Matt Damon's character, Randolph Juna, is talking to um, his caddy, who's like this grade school boy, and he's, he says, you really love this game, huh? And he goes, uh, it's uh, Hardy Graves, he goes, it's the greatest game there is. And Randolph says, you really think so? And Hardy says, ask anybody. It's fun. It's hard, and you stand out there on that green, green grass, and it's just you and the ball, and there ain't nobody to beat up on but yourself. Just like Mr. Noonan keeps hitting himself with the golf club every time he gets angry. He's broken his toe three times on account of it. It's the only game I know where you get to call a penalty on yourself, if you're honest, which most people are. 
There just ain't no other game like it. I, um, I pick golf because it's typically considered like the gentleman's sport or the gentle sport. Um, I was doing some research, and I, I actually found an article online in the 1916 edition of Vanity Fair written by uh, Robert Stanley Weir. Sounds like someone that would write an article in the 1916 edition of Vanity Fair. And it was called The Gentleness of Golf, and it was subtitled, A Refutation of That Popular Misconception, The Profane and Ill-Tempered Golfer. <laughs> in it, Weir describes a transformation that comes over those who embrace golf, and it's something he calls the golf change. And please excuse the, the long reading here, but I, I, he says, Who indeed but has observed what a softener of manners golf is. The tradition of the uninitiated is, of course, that the game is an encourager of blasphemy. But as the late Lord Tennyson remarked in one of his poems of certain detractors, let them rave! Golf is an assuager, an emollient, and an encourager of silence and self-control and nobility. I have known the most uncouth and brazened of brigands, accepting office as caddies for the sake of filthy lucre, but disdaining the whole business at the outset as essentially beneath contempt, they finally and speedily become polished into gentlemen of address. Life after golf was never again the round of maledictions and fisticuffs it was before. He goes on, he says, I've seen many eminent golfers in my day, and they were all noticeable for a singular calmness and courtesy of demeanor that is almost unique among sportsmen. And then he finishes, he says, the gentleness of golf makes them great. The gentleness of golf makes them great. Remember that phrase later, the gentleness of golf makes them great. And as much as I'd like to say that I can relate to Mr. Robert Stanley Weir's description of this golf change, my personal experience has been much different. I think a more relatable example may be someone like golf professional Sergio Garcia. He's a, if you guys don't know Sergio Garcia, he's a Spaniard. Um, he won his first uh, major tournament, the Masters, a couple years ago. And he's no stranger to letting his emotions go on the golf course. He's been known uh, for throwing his clubs, uh, throwing his shoes even. Um, and actually, this past February, he was actually disqualified from a tournament uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi International, for damaging at least five greens during the third, uh, third round of the tournament on Saturday. And the reason was because he was so upset with his play and with the conditions of the course, he was like dragging his feet on the, on the greens, and he was tearing up the greens with his shoes. And even on one green, he actually took a divot out, meaning like he took his club or took a tool and an implement and like put a hole. And he got disqualified for that because of the poor sportsmanship and poor behavior. But actually, the day before um, is, you know, someone actually caught a video of him in a sand trap, and he apparently didn't like the way the... <laughs> Sand trap was dug, and, and he just, he went, he went, he got really upset, you know? So, um, and actually this, uh, we had sound to this, but um, I don't know Spanish, and apparently he was using words that some people might be offended if they heard. I was, we were driving, we were driving, and I was like, uh, hey kids, what does this mean? And I said it, and they were like, oh, don't say that. <laughs> and I go, I was like, well, what about this word? They go, no, you don't want to say that one either, you know? So, but you know, go, so, you know. Sergio Garcia is kind of more of a relatable example to me of like the everyday um, issues that typical golfers face. So for those of you that are new here, uh, we've been going through a series on, I'll get that off of there. We've been going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit um, out of Galatians 5. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the series actually, um, and uh, we've just got this week and then next week. 
And uh, I'm going to be sharing about gentleness. The fruit, of the, the fruit of the Spirit are typically described as those characteristics or qualities that are evident in the lives of Christ followers. Um, and, and Paul, in Galatians 5, he actually compares and contrasts. He contrasts these, these characteristics with what are called the works of the flesh. And, uh, and these fruits of the Spirit, and we've been kind of hammering on this point um, from the beginning, is that these are not things that we generate within ourselves. They're not like qualities that we will ourselves into, but they're, they're things that happen as we develop and nurture a, a relationship with, with God. They're, they're grown in us as we're transformed into the image of Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end. Um, but just to kind of set the table, I'm going to just right off the bat give you sort of the definition that, that I've chosen to use for gentleness um, that gentleness is an internal rest. It's something that happens on the inside of you that produces a posture, um, a leaning of tenderness towards those around me. It's more than just being soft-spoken or calm. Um, it's more than just inactivity, and we'll talk about that later. There's actually, there's activity involved in gentleness. And when you say, well, why, why is this characteristic and quality so important? Why would we want to talk about this? Not just because it's in the Bible, but because it's important in the world that we live here and now and today. Gentleness is important because the world we live in is harsh. It's harsh on a variety of different levels. I'm just going to kind of name three, and, and we'll have some fun with some pictures and stuff, but it, not to detract from the fact that this, this world we live in is a hard place environmentally, right? The world is unforgiving. It's, it's deadly. It's devastating, right? Think of California and the wildfires. It's overwhelming. Think of tornadoes and the storms that just can overwhelm. And the environment, the world that we live in, is just, it's, it's office access, it feels like sometimes. It conspires against us to do us harm. But not just the environment that we live in, but the systems, the systems that are in this world make it a really hard place to live. There's economic hardship. There's disease. Right? This sickness that just kind of permeates our bodies. War and oppression, things that people in this room we have no control over that, that, that happen to, to us. People in foreign countries, people that we don't even know that are affected by, by war and oppression. Government and ideological and economic forces, both here and all over the world, which are intentionally or not creating an increasingly polarized society. Right? The systems of the world are just sort of just, it makes it, makes it hard. It just, it's, I don't know another way to say it. But people are hard too, right? Just, just by our very nature, we're aggressive. We use force to get what we want. You've heard the expression, we, we power up on one another. We're agenda-driven. We're aggressive. We're loud. We're demand, oh, that's not the picture I wanted. Sorry. That's, we're loud. We're boisterous. We're demanding. We're opinionated. Let me use a different stock photo instead. We're, we're, you know, we're brash, right? And we're not, we're not ashamed. We're not afraid to tell people how we feel about whatever it is that we think. It just comes out of our mouths. The self rules, right? It's all about me and what do I want and how can I, you know, it's just, it's, hard, it's a hard place to live when you can't even get someone's attention because they're so focused on themselves, and all of this conspires to have an effect of, of just creating, I don't know, a sense of weariness, a, a burden. Like, I feel like a literal burden 
that we, can, we all experience because of these forces that, are, that go on in the world. Anyone that knows me knows that uh, my favorite band is the Avett Brothers. We actually had a song up here once, and they're actually coming out with a new album in October. They announced it um, just this week, and uh, they've got a new music video out for one of their songs they just released, but they, they actually came out with a mission statement. Um, they released it on Instagram. Seth Avett uh, kind of uh, penned this, kind of a, it's kind of a social commentary, but I'm just going to, the first paragraph. He, say, he says that the last thing that the world needs is another piece of socio-political commentary. We as a species, species that boasts at least some semblance of consciousness are entering an odd new form of fatigue, one that encompasses not only our observance of the behavior of others, nefarious and otherwise, but also our own seemingly unlimited endurance to loudly judge and wax philosophically about it. Of course, in each instance, regardless of its nature or circumstance, our own personal opinions are presented as the clear, correct, and only perspective on any given subject. We speak as if we are not one body, though we are. We judge as if we don't value the judgment of others upon us, though we do. We forget to put our feet into the shoes of our neighbor, and we curse them for making the same ancient mistakes over and over again. So it kind of paints a, paints a very bleak picture of the world, right? Of course, it's not all that bad, but it can feel that bad sometimes. And into this dynamic, into this landscape, we want to talk about this fruit, this, this characteristic or quality that, that is really essential. And, and really, it's not a, an option for those who are followers of Christ that we call gentleness. And there's no better place to start than in the life of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, hard copy or digital, um, go to Matthew 11, please. And um, we're going to take a look. We're going to camp here. We're going to look at the idea of gentleness through the teaching and example of Jesus first, and then talk about what this looks like in the lives of his followers. So we'll start in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Starting verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What I find remarkable about this passage is that Jesus is offering rest to people who are obviously burdened by something. He, has, he knows the context. We'll talk more about that. But the basis of the rest that he offers isn't his strength. It's something else. Not because of all the power that's available to him, although he has it. Just in the prior verse, verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So if you want to know like, what, what God is like, look at Look at Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus is like, look at, look at God. And, and God and, and his son Christ had immense power available to them. See how his father is described in Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And then the prophet shifts. He says that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So we have this dichotomy. We have this picture of God, all powerful, right? Might, strong in his arm, but also gentle like a, 
like a shepherd caring for his sheep. God doesn't treat us with the unrestrained power that he possesses, but like a shepherd, he guides us, like a shepherd guides his sheep. Later in, in Hosea, he writes of God, he said, God's, God's actually speaking, and says, I led them with cords of kindness. That's in the, e, the uh, ESV, but the New King James actually says that I drew them with, with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. There's that word yoke again. And I bent down to them and fed them. Is this going on? There we go. David writes. This is, this is interesting to me. David is just like, he's the king, right? And he's, God's just given him immense victory in the battlefield. And he's writing this psalm and he says, Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Psalm 18. And then he goes down and he says, He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. So David is like, this is a victory song, right? The strong God, mighty in battle, giving David strength and victory. And he says that, he says that, you've given me your shield, the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. And at the very end, he says, your gentleness made me great. So in the middle, at the very end, of all of this, this psalm of like God's strength and power and victory and battle and might and bronze shields and bows and all this stuff, he, he ends and says that it was God's gentleness that made him great, not God's strength. Sorry, Robert Stanley Weir. So there's this, there's this contradiction. There's this contrasting that's going on between God's immense power but also the gentleness that he possesses, not dealing with us all the power available to him. We go back to our passage. Jesus uses his gentleness, the gentleness of God, as the basis to reach out to a world back then that was much like our world is today, burdened. We think that we've got it bad. It, the world is harsh. It's always been that way. There's always been environmental forces, religious, socio-political forces, people forces that have made the world really hard to, li- to live in for, for all of us. So, The specific burden that Jesus addressed, though, was was entirely avoidable. He actually calls it out specifically in a number of places, but in Matthew 23, he he says to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they, they preach, but they don't practice. And then he says this, they tie up heavy burdens, which are hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The people that Jesus came to were, were burdened by rules and regulations that the Pharisees, Pharisees were probably very well-meaning in what they were doing, right? They were responding to just coming out of, like, years of exile, which was caused because of people not obeying the law, right? So they responded by saying, we not only need to follow the law, we need to, we need to like, hyper-follow the law. So they came up with, like, more rules and more regulations and in effect, to, to try to, like, you know, get people back on track. But by doing that, by creating their system of rules and regulations, they created this heavy burden on people. And the burden, it was counter to the spirit of what God was trying to accomplish. So Jesus came and said, I've come to offer you a different yoke. The yoke is not the yoke of the law, but it's this, the yoke of the rest that I offer through, his, through my gentleness. And it's very timely, then, that immediately after offering this rest through his gentleness, that Jesus has like very, two very specific encounters 
with the Pharisees that sort of prove the point. So go in, in your Bibles, go to Matthew 12. And he says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So the next few verses, Jesus proceeds to like give them a lesson, a history lesson about David and about like what is the purpose of the Sabbath and, and what is it that pleases God and, and these kind of things. It, you know, he, he just kind of like tries to respond to their, you know, their questions and their aggression with just a lesson, right? But they still didn't get it because later on in Matthew 12, 9, he went from there and he entered the synagogue. Let me put it up on the screen. Sorry. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to help to heal on the Sabbath? So they, they were trying to accuse him. They were trying to trick him. And he said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not, uh, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and he restored it, healthy like the other. He restored it. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So, right? So Jesus says, you're burdened. I get it. I want to help ease that burden from you. Come, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest because I'm gentle and I'm humble. And the Pharisees just keep hammering him, keep hammering him and the people with these rules and regulations, right? And so Jesus does what is only natural. He, you know, he levels up. He powers up. He meets their aggression with aggression, Right away, he said that Jesus, aware of this, with, oh, I'm sorry, he didn't do that, actually. He withdrew from there. He withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. So, so Jesus, like, they're coming, the Pharisees are coming at him. They just, they just keep coming at him, right? And Jesus, instead of responding in kind, instead of, like, meeting like for like, aggression with aggression, strong opinion with strong opinion, he withdrew, that's, that seems kind of odd. People kept following, though, and he kept on healing them because Jesus knew that his job was not to get into heated arguments. It was to do the work that God, his Father, wanted him to do. Now, this was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, which is found in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus was not in the business of breaking people who were already broken, bruised reeds, or extinguishing those who were on their last legs, smoldering wicks. Sure, he could have gotten into heated arguments, and he would have won, but that wasn't what he came to accomplish. He came to accomplish something more. And, and his, his gentleness wasn't just evident in like withdrawing from an argument or just healing people. Like The same Jesus who overturned the tables you know, in the temple and who, got, who did get into arguments with the Pharisees is also the same Jesus who gently but firmly pursued the Samaritan woman at the well and who refused to condemn the woman caught in adultery and who stopped Peter's aggression 
and healed the ear of the man who came to arrest him and relentlessly but gently pursued Peter after his betrayal and then restored him to ministry. This Jesus, with all the power of heaven at his fingertips, then instead chose to submit to his Father's will and be crucified on a wooden cross. So so this is the example of Jesus. This is the example that we're called to follow. And it's the one we need to keep in mind when we think about what gentleness is supposed to look like in our lives. Now, gentleness um, as a concept is, uh, it can be, it's kind of hard to get our arms around sometimes. Um, In the ancient world, in uh, Greece and Rome, the world that Paul inhabits when he was writing uh, Galatians, um, gentleness and humility, um, it's kissing cousin, were not very highly valued. Um, Aristotle defined gentleness as the golden mean. So the golden mean, which is halfway between two extremes. Excessive anger or being unable to get angry about anything at all. So apathy. So gentleness is like kind of that sweet spot right in the middle. And, and they actually didn't even, the, the Greeks didn't even like consider it a strong virtue. They would call it like a grudging virtue. It was just a calmly measured response to everything in life. They didn't, no tantrums on one end, not caring about anything at all on the other. Really, though, when, when we define gentleness this way, kind of neither this nor that, gentleness is kind of a negative thing. It's like it's nothing, right? It's far from the positive and active and attractive thing that Paul writes about and that Christ embodies. In the New Testament, there's a couple different words for gentleness. The one that Paul uses is uh, prautes or praus. Um, it's not a, a made-up word. There's some words that we've used before that are kind of like made-up words that you only see once here, like in, in the uh, Fruit of the Spirit list. This one actually is characterized a number of different times in the New Testament. Um, and uh, we're going to just, I'm going to take some of the different ways that this word is used in Paul's writings and, um, and kind of summarize them into sort of something tangible that we can get our arms around. So uh, in the first place, gentleness as evidence of the Spirit's work in believers, it, it guides. It, it guides. A, a gentle person guides. A gentle person does not force. Gentleness does not force its way in life. A gentle person does not strong-arm others to get them to do what you want. A gentle person has respect for the personal dignity of other people. Um, a gentle person doesn't always agree with everything that everyone says. A gentle person understands that we're going we're gonna to disagree on things, but, but a gentle person does not try to change what they perceive to be wrong opinions or attitudes by um, domination or intimidation. But instead, they use persuasion and kindness. They don't use threats to coerce. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul Actually, he had a lot to say to the church of Corinth because they were a really screwed up church, right? So he, there was a lot going on in, in Corinth. And, and Paul, he's like, he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Paul, made, Paul, Paul used the gentleness of Jesus as the basis of making an appeal to a church. He had very tough things to say to them. But rather than bully them or power up on them, he used Christ as his example. Because gentleness doesn't bully. Gentleness longs for healed relationships and restoration. Um, 
I, I don't think it's a surprise, and we talked about this in our teaching team, that like Paul, you know, he, he gives this list of the fruit of the Spirit, right? And at the end of Galatians 5, right, 22 and 23. And right away in Galatians 6, he says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That, that the, very first, like the very first fruit that he puts into action is actually gentleness. Because I, I feel like gentleness is very counterintuitive. When we see something wrong, we want to we wanna respond. We're either going to go to one of two extremes. We're going to go to like extreme apathy. We're going to kind of turtle, right? Or we're going to like come out guns blazing. Now, fear, Paul could have, Paul, Paul, he had all of the authority to be able to go into different churches and like just come guns blazing. And fear can be an excellent motivator, right? For a period of time. For a season, others can use the power of their personality or position to push others around. We've all been there, right? Kids with parents who use their power, the power of their position, you know, people at work, neighbors, whatever. But fear doesn't have lasting power. If you're constantly kind of like living in an intimidated environment, eventually you're going to burn out. Gentleness, however, motivates us from a place that has what I think is staying power. A gentle person has a tender touch. We use that word tenderness in our definition. Gentleness conveys intimacy and care without conveying dominance. Um, a while ago, I actually was, an article was sent my way, um, and I hadn't really spent a lot of time looking at it. Um, but Mark, a guy named Mark Buchanan wrote a book called Your Church is Too Safe. Um, and... He commented on Galatians, on this passage, Galatians 6.1, and, and he says that um, the role of the mature, those who live by the Spirit, is to wade into another's mess, not to judge them or join them or feel superior to them or codependently take responsibility for them. The goal is to restore that person gently. The Greek here is worth noting, literally, be ye attuning. So he says the picture is of an instrument capable of producing beautiful, resonant, evocative music, but badly out of tune. That's you and me. Roughing up the instrument will only worsen and make permanent the problem. Discarding the instrument is stupid. It's a Stradivarius, a possession of inestimable value. It's just badly mistuned. And what should sing and woo instead squawks and yowls. It needs a gentle, masterful touch, a tightening here, a loosening there to restore it to its true potential. That is the work of those who live by the Spirit, is to restore to restore gently. I think Wayne Watson would agree with that. Anyone? No? No? No one? Touch of the master's hand? Oh, forget it. Okay. So then later, this, this is a good quote, actually. He says, referencing John 1, so go find it if you guys want. Referencing John 1, where Jesus is described, so Jesus in John 1 is described as the word made flesh, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Mark makes this comment. He says, when we speak truth, it should be so grace-soaked that it's hard to reject. When we speak truth, it should be so soaked in grace that it's hard to reject, but our grace should be so truth-soaked that it's hard to accept. Let that bang around in your skull for a while. So not only does gentleness guide, but gentleness is also patient. It's not aggressive. Gentleness responds to conflict and quarrels and rejection and unfairness and harsh words without bluster or self-defense, without, without harsh or angry words, without angry gestures or facial expressions. 
but with softness, controlling our tongues, controlling our temper. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then to Timothy, he writes, in 2 Timothy 2:24 and 25, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. You can disagree with me if you want. I'm just going to make a blanket statement. But a, a harsh, strongly opinion, opinionated, dogmatic Christian, a harsh, strongly opinionated, dogmatic follower of Christ is a contradiction in terms. We talk about this culture war that's coming, right? Us against them. Someone's got an agenda, right? There's a, there's a cultural left versus right thing going on. Church is right in the middle of it, right? It's, and if you don't feel it, it's, it's coming. And, and we have a choice. Some would say that, that, that the church, that those on the, the right or whatever side you feel, that, that the way to win the culture war is to grab as many levers of power that are available. You get the most levers of power then you can control the conversation and you can win the culture war. That we need to inflict as much pain and harm on those that we disagree with in order to win this war. I don't see that here. I don't see that in the words of Christ or in the words of Paul. The path to victory in the culture war is not power or judgment, but gentleness. It's tenderness. It's compassion. It's not, it's not acquiescing in agreement all the time. I, had a, I have a personal example, but I'm going to move on because someone's going to flash me a signal on time in a minute here. <laughs> All right, so let me put this up here. So a gentle person guides, doesn't force, is patient, not aggressive, and is considerate, and not demanding. The Pharisees were, were rigid and focused on the letter of the law. They kept on asking Jesus, is it lawful? Is it lawful? You guys know this kind of person? Right? <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Like, they're just, like, it doesn't matter what what might be the right thing to do. They're just, they're focused on what does the list say, right? All the while, they were trampling on the hearts of the people that they were trying to influence. This is the opposite of being considerate. Jesus, Jesus was in conflict with the Pharisees because he broke from their rigid traditions and he exposed how absurd they were. At the end of the day, I'm sympathetic to the Pharisees because I think on a lot of stuff, they were probably right. They were probably right on a lot of the stuff that they were trying to accomplish. But that doesn't make them an example to be followed. Because we, lose, we will lose every conversation we have with somebody, whether it's an argument or not, if we don't care about the person we're talking to. If you don't care about the people, if you don't show them kindness and consideration, if you don't have a, a gentleness about you, then you will, you will lose that conversation because you will have lost their hearts. Paul writes, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, this is gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. A gentle person is big-hearted. A gentle person is fair. A gentle person is reasonable. 
considerate. A considerate Christian listens to reason, is fair-minded, humane. They know the law. They know the letter of the law. They respect the letter of the law, but rather than always doing the letter of the law, they do what is right for the person in the situation. They focus on what's right for the person in front of them. I'm going to move on. I know I'm kind of rushing through these. I think at the end of the day, like I said, gentleness, it's kissing cousin, is humility, that, that true gentleness is rooted in genuine humility. A gentle person is self-aware. They have a deep understanding of their own flaws. And, sorry, when you have a deep understanding of your own flaws, um, it, it has a way of removing superiority from you, right? It takes away, you know, it's, it's okay to take selfies, but it's not all about you. The world is not all about you. We set aside us and focus on others. This is what Jesus did. Long passage. We all know it, hopefully. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ, although with the form of God. Didn't count equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A humble person recognizes where they came from. Uh, Christopher Wright, he wrote a book on the fruit of the Spirit called Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, aptly named. And he said that a gentle person is a thankful person. And he has this quote. He said, A gratitude for God's grace, a gratitude for God's grace evidenced by the forgiveness of sin, lends towards humility towards God and gentleness towards others. So if we have an understanding of what was done for us on the cross and what God's doing for us even now, what Christ does for us every day interceding on our behalf, it, can, it can't help but help us understand our position with God, but also it can lend towards how we relate to one another. I think it's a, for me it's a beautiful picture. Okay. Some practical application here. So back to golf. I've been playing golf in this league for a number of years and um, with some friends from work. And this has been a particularly frustrating year for me. Um, I'm an average golfer at best. I've been trying to like, get my game to the point where I'm what's called a bogey golfer. If anyone knows what that means, it's like every hole is like a set number of strokes, right? And if you go over that, you're, you, like if it, the par is four, you should get that ball in that hole in four strokes. And if you go over one, then you, you made a bogey. I really want to just try to be a bogey golfer, you know? I want to just try to, like, get par or bogey. If I get double or triple, you know, I'm off the rails or whatnot. Um, there's a, this whole handicap system. If you're a bogey golfer for nine holes, you're basically a nine handicap, right? You go bogey, you go one over on every hole. I started this season as an 11, which means I was just, just a little bit worse than bogey golf. At this point in the season, I'm a 16, Okay? It's only been, we've only been playing for six weeks, right? And if you know the math of how the handicaps get created, that's really hard to do. I've been playing very, very badly. I'm going the wrong way. And one of the biggest reasons why I'm going the wrong way is because I'm just not a very good golfer. I'm just not. Um, but I also have not put myself into a position to succeed at the sport because I haven't given any time at the range. I got one round in before the season started. You know, there's all these different reasons, none of which are really important. 
But what's important is that no matter how good of a golfer I think I can be or want to be, I can't, I can't will myself to be a good golfer. I can go watch the U.S. Open and see these guys doing their thing, but that's not going to make me a better golfer. I have to put myself in a position to succeed at the game by practicing the skills that are essential, driving, short game, being you know, around the greens, in the sand, where I spend most of my time and putting, to the point that I don't even have to think about it. It just happens. Now, we've been talking this whole series about how the, the fruit of the Spirit is not something that we self-generate. We don't create it in ourselves. And I, I feel like, you know, it, the, the fruit of the Spirit is something that happens as we grow in our relationship with Christ. I can't wake, wake up and make myself a loving, kind, gentle person. I don't, I, don't, I don't build up the muscle of gentleness. It's the gentleness of Jesus that's produced in me as I find rest in him. But it does require practice, sort of like the golf game. It requires practice of a different sort. We've been talking about the disciplines, right? Um, those, the low-hanging fruit are like reading your Bible, going to church, prayer, that kind of stuff. But, but we've been talking about worship and accountability and contemplation, fasting, journaling, other disciplines. Another tool in our tool belt is I'm just gonna, it's, it's honest self-assessment through feedback. In golf, one of the hardest things to do is to get direct feedback from somebody, especially when you're on the course. Um, I was actually playing a couple weeks ago, and my playing partner, um, who I've, been, I've just dragged, been dragging around the course this year, like a couple of times out on the course, after I made a horrible drive, he said, stop lifting your head up. And I knew what I was doing. I was lifting up my body, and, and it was just, I just was out of form, and, and my results were predictably bad. And, and I, know, I know in my heart, <clears throat> that he was right. I knew he was right, and I knew that if I had kind of internalized his feedback and followed through on it, that that would, that would help. But I was, I won't say the word that I was, I was peeved because um, I wasn't listening to him, and also because he gave me feedback that I didn't ask for. You know, it's just kind of hard when you're on the course, someone to give you commentary. So in that spirit, you know, uh, Proverbs says that wounds from a sincere friend are better than kisses from an enemy. So I'd like us to, this week, think about how can we get some wounds from our sincere friends, whether that's in cell group or if you're in a discipleship huddle group. Um, I want, I'm going to just throw some questions out. And these are going to be out in the email that goes out if you're on the email distribution for this. If not, go to mylcc.info and sign up for it. Um, and also, I think we'll be talking about these in cell group. But think about, just think about these questions and, and See how, ask people, I, th- I think getting feedback from people is essential. I, I know that I have so many blind spots in this, in this particular area. But do I escalate or de-escalate intense situations or conversations? Am I a calming influence on those around me? Do I put others at ease? Am I known for peacemaking or agitating? Do I stir up controversy where none need exist? A lot of overlap in these questions. Am I a safe person to be around? I know people are going to try and write all these down. I'm going to be flying again. You can find them online. Am I approachable? Are people, or are people afraid to talk to me? You don't always know that, right? Because it's a blind spot. That's why they're called blind spots. Am I, am I known more for the passion of my beliefs and convictions? Do people identify me with, oh, he's, he's that. He stands for that. He believes in that. Is that what you're known for? Or for the compassion for those around you? Am I considerate? Do I put other people first? When we disagree about something, and we will, how do you experience me? 
So think about those questions. Um, I want you guys to ask me those questions too as well. And then our final challenge, we've been doing this, is something like very tangible this week, like just one thing if you can think about, is that think about something that tends to set you off, right? What is it that lights the fuse in you? Driving, right? Is it that person? Is it when you're not thinking about anything specific, but when your kid doesn't like make his bed or clean up his clothes or whatever you ask him to do? I'm not thinking about anything specific. Is there anything that sets you off? you know, then, like, ask God to empower you. Because you can't do it yourself. Ask God to empower you to respond with his gentleness. Let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Thanks for, (laughs) you always, like, you use these things to work directly in me because you know that this is, like, this is right where I need to be, is safe in your arms, your strong, powerful arms, because you, you hold me in your gentleness, Lord. I pray that as I've um, been just internalizing this and thinking about it for a while now that, that you would use this in the lives of my friends here, that we could be more like you and like your son, that we would be gentle, Lord. Um, fill us with your spirit, Lord. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with one another about this, and we'll give you the glory. Amen.